Hello and welcome to this bonus edition GCP short focusing on motor fleet risk management and how the captive can play a central role. This idea came from Andrew Bradley, the former head of group risk services at Nestle from 2001 to 2019. Andrew is passionate about global motor fleet safety and gathered a diverse group of experts on the important risk management and risk financing issues concerning the topic. In the following order, we will hear from Lisa Villenegger, Head of Casualty Commercial Insurance at Zurich Insurance Company, David Cliff, CEO of the Global Road Safety Partnership, Andrew Bradley, former risk manager at Nestle, Jim Noble, Senior Vice President of Risk Engineering at eDriving, and Paul Verman, Head of Captive Services for Europe, Middle East, Africa, Asia Pacific, and Latin America at Zurich. So, uh, Lisa, I thought it would be a really good idea just to start off with kind of an overview of the uh, motor fleet insurance market. So, so what have been some of the developments in in the motor fleet insurance market over over recent years, and and how has Zurich as as an insurer been reacting to those? The commercial motor fleet market is hardening at the moment, and not just in primary insurance, also in reinsurance. Um, For example, in the US, rate increases of about 10% are now barely enough to keep up with claims inflation. Um, In the UK, we see similar developments, and it has now extended to continental Europe. Uh, Many difficult risks, such as rental cars, uh, struggle to find insurance now. And the reason for all this is, of course, increasing cost for insurers. And um, the reasons behind that are distracted driving is increasing. Uh, Indemnities paid for bodily injury claims and own damage are going up. Um, Cost inflation in repairing cars. So the victims get higher and higher annuities and compensations. And it costs much more to repair cars nowadays because they're full of technology. And, um, you know, in the U.S., in addition, we have this deep pocket claims trend. We call these nuclear verdicts. They're up about um, three times compared um, to six-year periods. Um, We see now 300 claims uh, that are above 1 million of, of big trucking accidents in the U.S. And all of this costs and has made the industry quite unprofitable. And... What we need really is more risk management in motor fleets. And it is absolutely essential to influence driver behavior. Zurich will only work with customers who are actively managing fleet safety and work to influence driver behavior. But if we see the right efforts then uh, in uh, our customers' organizations, we are then looking for true partnerships and we will help define and implement risk improvement actions. And we would love our customers to share more in the risk as well and take, um, for example, a share through their captive. So we're a billion-dollar motor insurance company and, um, you know, half of our business is in the U.S. and the other half in EMEA. And uh, we all work with our customers on the mobility concepts of the future. We are learning to offer solutions such as application programming interfaces or usage-based insurance. Telematics is a big topic. So a lot of changes are happening as well in our uh, motor fleet industry. And it's, it's a wonderful challenge, I think, for all of us. 
Fantastic. Thank you, Lisa. That's that's really set us up nicely, actually, for the rest of the conversation, particularly kind of touching on the on the risk management topic. And I really want to bring, uh, bring Dave in on, on this issue now. And I think it's really great we're talking so much about risk management in this episode because we talk so much about how captives can be used to fund that kind of activity and really encourage the parent to take their risk management even more seriously. In terms of the kind of risk management trends, are, are, there, are there kind of global trends in, in global road safety at the moment? And, and what are some of the, the key problems that need to be addressed? Yeah, I'll turn the clock back to 1999, which was when the, the whole issue of the sheer scale of road deaths really came to the fore with the International Federation of Red Cross producing the World Disasters Report. And that's a report that really catalogues what's going on globally in terms of humanitarian crises. And what it said was that road deaths were a man-made humanitarian crisis. They were approaching 900,000 killed each year. And that if we didn't do something about it, it was going to exceed a million. So one thing led to another, and the UN Decade of Action was called. We're just ending that. And despite all the action that's happened right around the world, the number who are being killed in road crashes has actually increased to 1.4 million dying every year, or 3,800 a day, or 57,000 being seriously injured every day. So those are the tetraplegics, the paraplegics, those who end up with brain injuries. So the the picture is really a, a grim one, and the story is not even. The levels of safety that we enjoy in, in the vast majority of high-income countries is relatively good, particularly across Europe. And then in places like across Asia, Africa, uh, Latin America, the rates are dramatically higher. So as a point of comparison, uh, the UK, Sweden, the Netherlands, Switzerland, the best performing countries have less than three deaths per 100,000 population. And the worst performing countries have over 30, so over a thousand percent greater. So the, the picture is really one of a game of two halves. High levels of safety in high income countries, generally speaking, terrible levels of safety in low and middle income countries. And the deaths is just one part of it. The other part of it, as I talked about a little bit earlier, were the serious injuries that result in often lifelong disabilities, people unable to work. So while high um, income countries tend to have good welfare systems and the ability to support families that uh, have you know, a key breadwinner taken out through a road crash, low income countries just simply don't have those welfare systems. So people are thrust into poverty very quickly. So in a nutshell, it's, it's a worsening problem and it is dramatically worse in the poorer parts of the world. Dave, what, what part do vehicle safety standards then play in, in reducing crashes and, and crash casualties? And are they directly related as well to the kind of, as you said, the kind of high income to comparison to low middle income countries? Yeah, it's, a, it's an enormous impact. Um, the best performing cars, which will have a global end cap rating of five, are dramatically less likely to crash. So they'll have things like electronic stability program, lane departure warning, anti-collision um, uh, avoidance system. So they'll have all those active safety measures. Uh, they'll have passive safety in the form of airbags and pre-tensioning seatbelts, 
when a crash occurs, they'll deform in a way that absorbs energy and means that casual people are far less likely to be injured. So those are the sorts of levels of safety we expect if we go and buy a new car in Europe, for example, or the United States. Now, what's happening is an identical looking car will be produced by some manufacturers and that will be without all those safety features. So Global NCAP just showed as an example, they crashed identical looking vehicles, one a secondhand vehicle from Europe, the other a brand new vehicle produced for the South African market. So they look identical. One would produce catastrophic fatal injuries for the occupant. Uh, the other would uh, mean the, the uh, occupants would walk away. So you have this um, major disparity in the safety standards of vehicles that are arriving in some markets versus what, we've ex- what we expect in high income countries. So these safety standards is fundamentally important to keep keeping people safe in a, in a collision. And how, how about r- road trauma risk? then, Dave? What do we mean by road trauma risk and and how does that uh, compare across the world? Well, the the, the most at-risk group are the young. So road trauma has been rightly called uh, the disease of the young. So five to 29-year-olds, our youngest, our most vulnerable, those who have the most to give economically, are also the most likely to be killed in road crashes. It's the leading cause of death for young people right across the world. As I said earlier, the, the rates are dramatically higher in Africa and Asia uh, and a lot of the the interventions that we know work so legislation that puts in place good speed limits that requires motorcycle helmets and safety belts to be worn puts in place drink drive limits and, and effectively enforces those sorts of laws those things are not in place so again there is major disparity around the globe in terms of road safety performance your risk of being killed and injured and also uh, as a consequence of that the, the risks and costs for insurers so there's a real incentive here for insurers to become actively involved in advocating for and promoting the sorts of measures that will reduce crashes, reduce uh, road trauma, and obviously reduce claims. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to come on to a bit more of that uh, with Jim, I believe, in a a bit. Um, Thank you, Dave. Um, Andrew, let's bring it back to the captive then for now. Um, You've obviously run large motor fleet programs uh, for a captive in in your previous role. What what are the difficulties and, and benefits of having motor insurance put for your captive is it is it an easy win or is it is it not quite so straightforward well i think adding anything into your captive can can be a bit of a challenge depending on how much support you've got from your uh, management but i think it can add diversification to your um, your captive you need quite a sizable premium to make it work and you need a fronting company and there aren't that many fronting companies out there that will actually do this so that could be an issue for some companies probably three carriers that will do that You also probably need to get your procurement department online because sometimes they can make things slightly difficult. They might have um, other objectives. And the other one you need to get in line are the leasing companies because often leasing companies offer you a total package that makes it look easy to uh, do everything, the, um, the tracking of the vehicles, the accident management, claims processes. But I think if you can um, unbundle the services, and you have a sizable pr- premium, and you can improve the risk over a period of time, you can certainly add value to your company. 
It's a bit like a, a pooling arrangement with employee benefits. If you've got multiple countries flowing into your, your, your captive arrangement, you might have motor vehicles. We had tricycles uh, for ice cream in Thailand, cars, vans, trucks. So you can have a, a widespread of vehicles in there that helps you get better data over a period of time and should be able, you should be able to invest in loss prevention or help influence that, hopefully on a global basis and also locally, and if you're making money at this, you can reinvest those profits into road safety and help to change the culture within your company and improve the um, road safety record over a number of years. I don't think this is something that's going to happen in, this, in the space of a year or two years. If I remember correctly, over a 10-year period, we managed to halve the uh, percentage of vehicles that are in crashes. The deaths and accidents also um, decreased. But you really need management commitment in a particular country because that's when it really works. There's no easy win to this. It's a multi-faceted um, problem. And obviously, the, the more exotic countries that you're in, as, as Dave alluded to, it can be difficult. But you shouldn't give up. We had uh, great results in places like uh, Pakistan or uh, in, in Mexico, some great results. But you need the commitment of the management. But if you've got that, the benefits can be tremendous over a period of time. The claims will come down. So that means the premiums uh, should come down. You'll probably make a profit, which enables you then to uh, invest in um, loss prevention. But hopefully, the, the, the number of deaths and serious injuries will also reduce drastically. You'll find that the residual value of the vehicles they're using will improve because there'll be less dents and knocks in them. And if you do it right and the drivers feel valued, the driver retention rate, as we saw in the US, improved quite dramatically. So there you're saving in other areas because you're not wasting time, money and um, and energy retraining new drivers. Sustainability, I think, is a, is a good argument these days. You need a sustainable fleet and that meets some of the goals with the UN, the UN sustainability goals. I'm also convinced, but not many people seem to buy into this, that, that if you have a safe fleet and uh, you keep building this concept of eco or eco driving, the, the amount of fuel reduces and so do the CO2 emissions. I think it also helps with comp compliance that you need to show, particularly in some countries, what is it you are you are doing to prevent accidents, both for your own employees and for the public. The industry works in silos, so it has even a bigger impact because we're talking about motor. But if you reduce the the, the, the number of crashes, it's also going to have a positive impact on workers' comp, employers' liability, life, medical, disability, travel, cargo. There's all sorts of benefits there. So to me, I think it's um, it can be a great addition uh, to the captive. Cheers, Andy. Yeah, really, really nice rundown of, of the different uh, challenges, but obviously the benefits as well. And of course, you know, one of the things you're really looking to do with a captive or any line of insurance is, is kind of really reduce losses. And, and that's why I'd like to bring in uh, Jim Noble. Jim, Jim, what do you think are some of the common barriers to, to true loss reduction for, for motor captives and, and how can those barriers be overcome? Thanks, Richard. Appreciate it. Um, it's interesting listening to Dave and Andy talk about the huge problem across the world and about things like, uh, you know, like manager involvement, those kind of things. It really comes to uh, the answer to your question that you just asked me. And, and that biggest barrier really to, to motor losses or, or getting over losses in motor fleet captives is acceptance. You know, crashes are really looked at as a kind of the cost of doing business by many companies. Even captive managers 
will kind of look at their loss expectancy models and they'll accept a higher level of risk than really is necessary. Now, it sounds kind of easy for me to say, well, just don't accept crashes anymore. But you really have to remember, and if you go back to what Dave said, you know, this is really this is really a global problem with a lot of economic barriers to it. Most people drive and most of them have driven most of their life. So this is not a work only skill. To overcome that barrier, you really have to change kind of their whole attitude about driving, not only for work purposes, but in their personal use also, which is really kind of the very definition of culture change that Andy had talked about. And you don't just simply flip a switch to change a culture. But one of the things talking today about captive structures and 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 building on some of the things that Lisa and Dave and, and Andy had, had talked about is these structures can really be used to help you create what we call at e-driving, we call it a crash-free culture. So a crash-free culture really is every crash or every incident is thought of as a performance failure. Inside the captive, inside the company, throughout the management structure, these are performance failures uh, that are looked at the same as any other production performance failure within the company. And again, this kind of a viewpoint really fits in well, I think, with the captive structure. So I have to go back to a second for the crash-free culture. It's not just a philosophy. It's really about a business structure. Uh, it's built into the captive. It's built into the insurance structure. It's built into really everything you do that says performance failures are not acceptable. So that's that's really that barrier and how to overcome that barrier. But again, I said, it's not like flipping a switch. In the past, you really kind of looked at deep dive data, developed insights, but you were using a lot of lagging indicators in order to uh, you know, you were looking into the past, trying to figure out what was going to go on in the future. But as Lisa talked about this earlier, today with the advent of in-vehicle information or telematics, you can really monitor drivers in near real time. You can engage those drivers in a way that tells them how they're driving in a non-threatening way, because nobody likes to be told that they're not driving safely. And once you tell them that, you can really give them instant access to training. And a lot of what's made this possible today is the widespread use of smartphones, not only in economically developed countries, but you you find them in the poorer developing countries also. So, so the use of smartphones is really kind of that next evolution in telematics. I refer to it as kind of like putting uh, culture change tools right in the pocket of the driver. It's kind of a constant safe companion that helps quicken the transition to a tra- to a crash-free culture. Also, not to be overlooked is these types of telematics tools can give that same almost real-time deep insights right back to the captive manager so that they know how the risk is performing well before losses happen. So no matter whether this is a standalone tool or it's married to other in-vehicle technologies, today, these in-vehicle technologies are really the cure for that risk acceptance. Uh, It helps to drive out distracted driving. It works across a wide variety of vehicles and really is kind of that step that we've all been looking for in a way to reduce losses and to improve captive performance. 
Thank you, Jim. No, really, really nice explanation there of the, of the increasing role of telematics uh, in, in motor programs, uh, which obviously is extremely relevant at the moment. Paul, uh, the others have given us a really good insight into the, the different challenges associated with managing both the safety of a global motor fleet, but also the insurance. How can a, a captive involvement support the risk management efforts and, and provide uh, the risk financing benefits? Well, Richard, risk managers can certainly benefit from a captive involvement for the line of business motor fleet. This, in my view, in both directions. If the loss ratio is very profitable or if the loss ratio is very poor, thanks to the captive's risk participation, risk managers should be able to implement and monitor in a more efficient manner the development of risk management measures for the benefit of the parent company. I recall that Lisa mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that she has observed an increased need for risk management in motor fleets. And we as Zurich work with our customers on mobility concepts for the future. And a reduced claim exposure will certainly increase the underwriting appetite of insurance companies. We have learned from Andrew that claims are expected to decrease provided that captive owners implement an active risk management concept. However, it may take some years time in order to achieve the requested business impact. Since captives provide access to the reinsurance markets, risk managers have the choice to carry their motor exposure to various markets. So it is likely that they can follow arbitrage strategies with the reinsurance markets. Interestingly, the line of business motor fleet reflects currently only a smaller part of our entire captive portfolio. All of them are reinsurance captives. And I assume it is mostly liability exposure for their own motor fleets. For this type of risk, a professional fronter is required for the operational handling of the insurance programs. Large volumes of certificates are required to be issued for the fleet to evidence coverage, which requires a lot of operational capacity. In addition, in most countries, the motor business is subject, as we know, to additional regulations. Andrew mentioned that the choice of professional and global operating captive fronters is limited. Our captive customers use both reinsurance structures. The non-proportional share, mostly for primary layers, and a quota share reinsurance, which covers the entire sum of insurance. I have experienced the following reasons for the respective decision. Provided that the risk manager has decided to cede to the captive the primary layer based on a non-proportional structure, he's highly interested in reducing the frequency of claims which have occurred. In this, in this specific layer. Furthermore, gross and net reinsurance captive sessions can be observed in the market. For captive net sessions, it might be attractive to buy standalone stop loss agreements in order to limit for the captives a high number of frequency claims. For captive gross sessions, access layers might be placed in order to secure attractive terms and conditions in the reinsurance market. To be successful with such a strategy, Andrew mentioned that it is vital that a risk manager can rely 
on the support of his management. Already, a proportion share of, say, 5% for the entire program provides a risk manager with a transparent view of the claim amounts for all layers involved. In addition, market exclusions could be financed by the captive itself. For rental companies, I have observed the following. Their reinsurance captives get involved substantially via proportional reinsurances. The main value of an insurance fronter is very often perceived in the fronting services and less in the capacity provided. The country portfolios of those rental companies very much vary from a profitability point of view. A retrocession capacity might be attractive for an insurer or insurer provided that the captive of the rental company finances a substantial part of the entire portfolio on net. In a hardening market environment, it is likely that insurance buyers tend to explore the use of a reinsurance captive for their motive programs and seek therefore professional captive fronters. Theoretically, provided it obtains the necessary, necessary licenses, a captive could operate as an insurance company for motor fleet exposure. However, comprehensive services must be organized by the captive owner for policy and claims management purposes, namely for the already mentioned certificates. Also, if a captive owner is operating in a lot of countries, insurance licenses have to be obtained for each and every country. This makes this option theoretical in most cases. Following an active risk management, which is fully supported by the parent company, will result in a more attractive motor portfolio. In addition, a diversification effect can be achieved for the entire captive portfolio. As we heard from Dave and Jim, risk managers and captive owners can benefit in our today's world from comprehensive market experience and expertise to reduce motor claims and increase the captive performance. And this should be, in my view, the joint goal for all involved market participants to achieve an optimization of the risk financing costs for motor insurances across the market cycle. Well, that was a really comprehensive discussion on global motor fleet risk management and the role captives can play. Biographies on the five speakers can be found in the episode description and loads more information, including photos and all previous episodes can be found on the Global Captive Podcast website, globalcaptivepodcast.com. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives. Captives.